Actually, I'm glad I can speak. My daughter headbutted me really hard in the chin earlier, so I just stamped marks my. in my teeth and my inside of my lip. Oh, yeah. So then you have that beard to, to cushion it. Yeah, it kids have no chill much. when it comes to physical violence. So this, this was a hug. They they just don't understand that they're getting bigger and heavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The jumping on my belly is still fun for them. <laughs> yeah. Our oldest daughter broke my, my wife's nose once. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Lars Wikman, and today with me on the panel of hosts, I have the illustrious Alex Kutmus. Thank you, thank you, and howdy, howdy. And as per usual, before we introduce our guest, we just want to touch briefly on our sponsors, which is Groxio, career fuel for programmers. So if you're looking for that Elixir course, uh, want to learn how to do it right, uh, get in touch with Bruce and the gang, and they can they can set you straight. And also my company, Underjord, Honestly, I'm I'm pretty excited about the market maybe bouncing back a bit. I've had a weird uh, like influx of work recently, so maybe maybe I'm not looking for clients right now. If we could do an entire episode based upon the market and like Elixir Legion, I think that'd be a really interesting topic. I got a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good segue to introduce our guest before he goes off. Uh, our very special guest, uh, Brian Cardarella of Dockyard, who's here to talk mostly about Live You Native and not at all about the market conditions for Elixir. Not today, Welcome at least. To show, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those out there doing Elixir consulting, I feel for you for the past year. It's been tough. I, I, it's consulting in general, but um, you know, it's been a tough year. Yeah. It's not that there's not enough people doing Elixir. It's just that everyone just close their wallets all over the map and that's been interesting <laughs> well it, it's i mean inflation has a lot to do with it uh most companies especially larger ones tend to borrow money in order to take on these projects and they're unwilling to do so when the interest rate is above a certain percentage um i mean there's that i also am i mean this is like tinfoil conspiracy theory hat but i think a lot of the fang companies have really it effed us pretty bad uh, with the overhiring that they've done over the past decade. Uh, their IPO valuations and their market cap in a lot of ways is influenced by their headcount. And so they just went and got a lot of people, um, had them doing just busy work for years. Uh, with I, I know it's a reductive statement, but that's mostly true. They And now that you know money isn't as cheap as it used to be, this is why we're seeing the massive amount of layoffs and th these companies, like everything happens downstream of them. And so you have the service companies, you have the product companies, they're all kind of beholden to these large fan companies and it all just like dominoes down the line. Yeah, I I'm actually thinking that we're looking at maybe here in the United States, at least Q3, when we sh should start to see like, like this really kind of coming out of the woods for us. Yeah, I hope before then, but it certainly seems that like they set the trend of layoffs and everyone kind of kind of started to get cold feet. Uh like the interest rates definitely matter in in this circumstance as well. But it's yep. it's like, oh, 
you're not taking this seriously enough unless you're doing cuts. <laughs> and then yeah. suddenly no one at least wants to hire because that looks real bad. Um, well, yeah. the optics of going out and hiring a consultant after just making a ton of layoffs is difficult Yeah, as well. <laughs> For sure. All right. But we actually had the glorious opportunity to sit down with Brian, me and Alex, uh, for no less than two hours of uh, personal Live View Native workshopping. <laughs> so we've actually poked around with Live View Native uh, for context for this conversation. And that was quite eye opening for me, at least. Uh, Alex, how was your experience? Yeah, I was going to say, first of all, thank you, Brian. That was great for you to take some time out of your day to show us around Live View Native and, and uh, you know, build an app together for, for iOS. I, I think that's actually the first iOS app I've ever built. I never did uh, Objective-C or Swift or anything. So that is the first mobile app I've ever built. So thank you, Brian. That's, that's our goal. Like, we want to enable lecture developers to be competitive on anything with a screen. So, you know, the... Uh, uh, I mean, this is kind of getting ahead in the conversation, but for me, um, I mean, first and foremost, I consider myself a software engineer, but second most, I mean, I run a business and I have to think strategically. We've attached our, you know, we've, we've hitched our wagon to Elixir um, at Dockyard. And so uh, in order for Dockyard to be successful, Elixir has to be successful. So I look at what are competitive threats to Elixir and what is really preventing Elixir from getting wider adoption. Um, I know every time I point this out, there's always someone that says React's not a React's not a language, but I actually look at React as an ecosystem, and I think it's probably one of the biggest competitive threats to Elixir as an ecosystem. Um, you have uh, you know React starting as a web, really kind of like VDOM implementation esque, migrating to a framework, uh, and then you have React Native that allows you to build out React esque applications on native devices and now you have react server components and so by and large react is covering nearly the entire stack at that point and this is where it becomes competitive with elixir as a uh, technology and ecosystem um, and so i think that one of the ways in which elixir can try to gain hearts and minds is it has to actually be offering competitive technologies and hopefully better technologies than what these other ecosystems are doing. And up until now, really, the only option you've had was Phoenix and LiveView for building on web. Yes, there's Scenic for doing, you know, native application development on very, you know, specialized systems. Um, there's Elixir Desktop, um, which uh, I think is a cool project, um, but very different than what we're trying to do. And then, uh, it's actually currently in the Livebook project, but there's Elixir Kit, which the Livebook team is using to compile uh, Livebook to a macOS desktop environment. But I believe currently it's limited to just macOS in its compilation targets. So that the idea here was, you know, in some ways, you know, can we do this? And then in other ways, like, does this actually have a strategic value to Elixir and to the ecosystem as a whole? And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say that I think the answer to both questions is yes. Nice. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we have, for those two hours that we sat down, uh, we built a pretty nice app and it was very intuitive. It was pretty straightforward. 
for somebody that has no native experience, it was it was a really welcoming experience, and it wasn't you know too much of a change from you know developing a Live View app or, or a Phoenix app. So it, it felt very comfortable. It felt very familiar. It wasn't a lot of mm-hmm. like macro magic, and it you know it didn't have its own entire DSL that you had to learn. So it was a very it, nice like, experience from it only from took a, us three years to get to that point. <laughs> it's <laughs> the uh like there was about a year of prototyping and exploration before my first ElixirConf keynote um a year and a half ago. And then since then it, it's been a lot of going down a particular road on an implementation, figuring out that it probably wasn't the right direction to go, and then walking it back. So the like the three years ask of development time, if three years ish of development time, I'd say that a large part of it was exploring implementation directions and then deciding that this wasn't the right way to go because the ergonomics weren't correct, or it was a scalability dead end, or it just wasn't going to play well with live views programming model. Um, and one of those things was actually something that uh, lost us, you know, some friends early on because we uh, we had some early adopters after the first ElixirConf uh, keynote. And we, I'd say that back then LiveView Native was set up in a way to kind of be a, it was almost like a, a blending of programming models between LiveView and the way you want to do it really on native application development. So there was this concept called native bindings that was implemented. It was a two-way data binding uh, between the server and the actual uh, native SwiftUI client. And I, I just, I eventually just jettisoned the feature um, because it, it, I think as a feature, it probably had merit and value, but for the project as a whole, it was so divergent away from the experience you're typically having building live view applications that it almost wasn't really a live view implementation anymore. Like other than the, like the morph DOM, uh, like logic for merging the, uh, the tree together. That was effectively it. All of the other ways that you would build a live view native application would require you to have separate event handlers, you know, the template rendering, of course, being separate. But my goal was to have it in a way where your state management was always going to be a single lane. So regardless of whether or not the rendering target was the browser, a Swift UI client, uh, whether it's iPad, iPhone, Apple Watch, et cetera, or a Jetpack client on Android or wherever it was, you should always have a single way to manage the state on the server, which is this, the current way that LiveView does it for the web. And then uh, after that, it's really about just getting the templates to render properly and styling your applications properly. Uh, so I think that this probably creates a bit of a limit on the potential that LiveView Native could be used in the sense that there are going to be use cases that just like on the web, like live view is not the best answer for every single use case. Same thing on native live view native is not going to be the best answer for every single use case. But uh, to that end, we support hybrid applications as well. So in instances where you need to hit the eject button and like really do the work on device um, for everything else, where you still want to take advantage of live view, that's just another view that gets mixed into your, uh, Swift UI view tree and the same will hold up for Jetpack. So having hybrid applications, I think is going to be a very popular, uh, uh, migration choice. You know, we we're looking at really two, uh, adoption paths at the moment. There's those that are, 
they're looking to create their first uh, native application and are considering LiveView Native for that because they have an existing LiveView stack, um, or they already have a pre-existing uh, native application and they want to replace like API calls or they want to extend their application even further, but they don't want to throw everything out that, that they already have built. And we can do uh, both styles of application builds with LiveView Native, which ends up being really nice and flexible. Yeah, and so now the the library is at, is it at 0 0.2 now? It's an alpha for 0 0.3. Um, there's probably, if I can actually get some time to put in some work this weekend, I may be able to put it in beta by next week. I was hoping to do it this week. I just didn't have the time. Um, the intent right now is for 0 0.3 release final by end of February. Um, and this includes some significant architectural changes from 0 0.2. So the 0 0.2 uh, version of the software was, uh, um, I'd say everything that was implemented up until maybe late November, early December. Um, and then I took over the project in December and uh, started what um, is really a uh, re-architecture, re-architectural effort to more closely align it with conventions in Phoenix and to take advantage of some upstream changes that we got into LiveView itself. And the, the big one was, um, I think it was released in 0 0.20.2 two or three, I forget the version is released in, but it, it's this render with render with is an option that we can pass uh, from the on mount tuple being returned. And this allows us to override the function used for rendering the template. Um, what we were doing previously was uh, really all this work within a plug to simulate like the format and to, uh, to delegate out to the proper layouts and the proper render function. Um, actually, we were ac actually what we were doing was we were, we were injecting values into the assigns and you're using pattern matching on the assigns to render out the correct uh, uh, template for, uh, for LiveView Native. What render with allows us to do is now delegate not just to a separate function based upon some a content negotiation uh, 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 kind of logic that we're injecting to on mount callback it allows us to actually delegate out to an entire module. So we have this whole concept on render components now, and this is enforcing isolation for the template rendering, which is absolutely necessary considering the number of templates that you could potentially have with a live native application, because we, we support not just templates per like platform. So not just like a Swift UI template and a Jetpack template, but templates per target per platform. So you could have a watchOS template, you could have a, uh, a tvOS template. Um, mm. There are certainly instances where you wanna share templates between targets, like iPad and iPhone can sometimes share templates. And there but is some- But you definitely some... want to be able to override one of those. Yeah, you wanna be able to override a target specifically, and we're adding some pattern matching uh, to actually uh, do like version matching as well, because there's gonna be a need to have some graceful upgrades or at least support some legacy features if 
the end users have not upgraded their clients just yet. And we actually have a PR right now that is allowing us to inject some, some views client side um, when you use the live view, uh, we're going to say the live view view, the live view native view in the Swift UI uh, application. So in the instance of like certain lifecycle events, if the network goes down or if you're having an error, having control over exactly how those screens render in production mode is uh, yeah. you know, an experience that we certainly want to provide control over. Um, but you can't serve those views up from the server if you can't connect to the server. So having a little bit of mix of some Swift um, client side is necessary. Like overall, like the, the, the patterns that we found to be successful is when we start to think of these clients as effectively browsers and um, some of the security model requirements and some of the workflow requirements, we've been writing browser-esque things for. Um, there's this whole kind of proposal I'm putting together right now on uh, asset management for caching, um, like the style sheets that we have implemented, images, all these things, because they're gonna be fetched remotely or asynchronously. We need a way to, you know, for performance improvement, if you pull that asset down once, you shouldn't have to pull it down again, especially if it hasn't changed. And so we're effectively just re-implementing um, like browser asset management uh, and caching yeah. layer, which is a bit weird to say. Uh, I mean, eventually, I think someone even brought up like, why don't you just do everything in the web view? Yeah, it's not a bad idea. We just kind of like manage and, and merge the actual tree in the web view and then pass that out back to the Swift UI client and have it walk it. But I mean, there, there's, um, there's different ways we can go ultimately with that solution. Uh, but for now, um, it's still trying to keep everything out of a web view. Like the, the, the concept I want people to like really, you know, really buy into is that this is not a web view that we are not rendering out like HTML. We're not hotwire. Yeah. We're not, you know, these server side rendered web frameworks. We're actually rendering real native, uh, yeah. uh, views. It is a live view of native components. And that's, uh, yeah. I think that's kind of tricky. Like it's very understandable in the web where it's like, oh, live view keeps things in the server and that's that's kind of to be expected but it is much mm. less expected like I, I know i've thought of this the wrong way around like where i thought you actually ship like the intent is to ship the server which is a potential future possibility as we've we've right. discussed offline but uh no like same trade-off you have a server it holds state but yep. it drives uh, or at least provides the state for and the view for uh, a bunch of mobile devices. And mm -hmm. uh, it's odd how that's kind of less uh, less expected for a mobile device, but it, but it definitely, yeah, it definitely the, threw me for a loop to, to think of it that the way. The irony here is that while I, I mentioned at the top of the show that React, at least I think of React as a competitive ecosystem to Elixir, Live View Native probably wouldn't exist without React Native. Because as the history goes, as I understand it, 
is that React Native came out before SwiftUI. And it proved that building out native applications with composable UI was not just possible, but preferable. And people liked that developer experience. Um, now, whether or not SwiftUI was being ideated before React Native, I don't know, but I've read in various places that uh, SwiftUI was heavily influenced by React Native's composable uh, UI framework. And LiveView works best with a composable UI framework. So if React Native influenced the creation of SwiftUI, our ability to create LiveView Native on top of SwiftUI was predicated by React Native. Um, so it's all kind of like circular at the end of the day. Uh, that's funny. Is Jetpack also a composable UI framework? It is, yeah. So Jetpack. Jetpack's composable UI, Win, uh, WinUI 3 is composable. I think that there's absolutely is um uh like we can create clients for non-composable ui it's just the view tree kind of instantiation gets a little tricky there because like the the morph dom side of it is not the issue well I, i'd say the stitching and patching of, of the diff is not the issue um because that's just operating on a flat string like there's no concept on um like on a tree or anything like that when it comes to uh the diffs that come over the wire it's the it's the walking of that and instantiating the tree and kind of managing the uh, um, you know the the parent child relationship between the nodes of that tree is where the composability of a UI becomes easier to implement um, with uh, with LiveView Native. But one thing I've looked at I've considered is um, the Godot engine. Um, the game engine has a UI framework. And I think it'd be really cool to have a live native client for the Godot uh, game engine. You, know, you can imagine where, <clears throat> um, you know, maybe some multiplayer game has some rudimentary UI on the screen and this could easily be managed by live native. Um, you know, anything that really has a network connection and uh, some sort of you know, even basic UI framework could potentially be a LiveView Native client. And to enable the easier creation of LiveView Native clients, we have this project called LiveView Native Core, which is built in Rust and is really trying to encapsulate everything that would be shared between clients, like the common code. So the network code, you know, pretty much everything in Phoenix channels, and then everything that would be in like the LiveView uh, JS client including the morph DOM implementation. Um, so if the thing you're so, trying to implement a native view, yeah, possible yeah. UI for can bind to Rust, which is pretty much anything as yep. long as it has a C API or better. Yeah, we're uh, using yeah, Unify yeah. to provide the bindings back to the um, whatever the native target is. Uh, in this case, we're currently have, of course, SwiftUI under development and Jetpack uh, clients in development. So Swift and Kotlin are those uh, unified binding targets. Did you guys re-implement Morphdom in Rust so you could do the? Yeah. Uh, um, okay. Okay. I yeah. don't know if you like so, compile it to like Wasm and then put no, it into uh, you know Rust that way. No. So uh, when I when I so when this project first got started, um, I was actually I had left Dockyard during that period of time, and I was you know Chris and I, we were like, "Oh, is this possible?" And I started to explore it. 
so I, I actually re-implemented the LiveView client and MorphDOM in Swift, uh, but it was like mm -hmm. functional Swift code because I was literally, I didn't know Swift. I was learning as I went. Um, and so I was going through the LiveView client code and implementing the exact same function calls and just, I mean, this is the nice thing about functional programming was that I was able to just jump in IEX, send it like some example values, see the output. And now I could build out my test suite to assert against. And now I can mm -hmm. implement these individual functions um, in Swift, a language I've never written anything before and get something that was mostly correct. It wasn't idiomatic Swift code and the performance was probably not as great as it could be. But within like two weeks, I went from not knowing any Swift to actually building out uh, the prototype of LiveView Native, um, mostly because I was able to very easily like look at in isolation um, the data in, data out of these functions uh, that are implemented in LiveView itself. Oh, to, but to, gotcha. to follow up on your previous comment, one thing that we are considering is um, like the long-term maintenance of LiveView Native Core in Rust uh, can be a bit dubious. Like the, and the other advantage of like bringing everything to one library is that there's upstream changes that happen in LiveView and we only have to fix it once in, like in one place rather than like in every single implementation for every single client. But do we even need to do that? And uh, one thing that we're starting to explore is if we can take those original like uh, Phoenix channels, JS and LiveView JS clients and compile them into WASI and then wrap them in a Rust sandbox and run them in that way. Um, the answer though is probably not at the moment. There is part of the WASI. So for those who are familiar with WASI, WASI is a subset specification, or I guess you may call it a superset specification of WebAssembly. Whereas WebAssembly is intended to compile binaries for the browser, WASI intended to co compile binaries to be run on the server command line. And uh, I think it's called WASI phases. It's currently like the phase two has the network connectivity, including HTTP uh, and secure, and then sockets, which are the, you know, what we need um, to do this. These are currently coming out of the implementation on phase two, I believe. So it's getting closer to being part of the specification or implemented. But with the speed at which, you know, these standards committees move, committees move, I don't want to wait on it. So we're moving forward with the Rust implementation for now. And in the future, I think there probably is value in exploring. If we can just take the original JS and compile around it and then provide the unified bindings back to their, our clients, that's the way to go. Because now we have one real client that everybody's using under the hood. It's like you kind of, whatever changes or features they add upstream, we get automatically. In addition to that, um, Chris mentioned interest in this because then he could, like he like any changes that happen in the JS client, he has to account for in the client proxy on uh, in Elixir. And that's kind of, it, it seems like it's just some like something he's always been struggling with or it's a real time sink for him. So if we can just wrap everything and then using um, what's Hans's library, uh, the Rust to Elixir, yeah, using Rustler, um, you know, to provide uh, the JS client back to the uh, LiveView test module, 
I mean, we have a pretty nice setup at that point, if that's possible in the future, but not now, probably not anytime in the next year, but at some point, maybe. Interesting. I was going to ask, because uh, we're, we're a little far to the discussion here. Could you give maybe the listeners like a, an overview of the various like libraries or projects that are in LiveView Native and just, you know, mm. just so that people have that context of, you know, what LiveView Native Core does, what LiveView yep. Client Jetpack does, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That way they don't feel it's lost. Growing. The... <laughs> it's actually growing to the point where I considered starting a new GitHub org specifically for the Swift UI stuff. Um, but so currently uh these are the libraries that are under active development we have live view native which is an elixir library and that provides a lot of the primitives for uh the content negotiation the rendering template rendering etc we have live view native style sheet which is a way for us to encapsulate it's a so live view native style sheet is client agnostic it provides all the uh compilation um logic for compiling style sheets but it doesn't include any parsing for the individual like styling rules that are specific to a client. Um, we have a way to delegate out to the client specific rules parser uh, at that point when you define like the format, uh, the client type in your style sheet. So if you say like format Swift UI, it knows to look up the Swift UI client uh, and then delegate any of the final like last mile parsing out to that uh, style sheet handler. The um, uh, Live View Nate, so Live View Client Swift UI um, has all the Swift UI, Elixir, and um, Swift code. Uh, there's Live View Client Jetpack, which is the same Elixir code plus the jet, the uh, native Jetpack code. We've tried to keep the projects in the same repo as far as like these uh, native clients go, and we have a whole convention around the um, uh, the folder structure for those libraries, and we have naming conventions around the projects themselves. So you'll see some libraries that are called live underscore view underscore uh, native underscore Swift UI. And the reason for that is because uh, in hex, like they, like Phoenix live view is live underscore view. Um, so we wanted to kind of match the sorting when it comes to searching, but the rest of our projects that are now outside of like the hex ecosystem are live view one word dash native, because we want to like, we're not officially part of like the Phoenix court, right? We're not any part of the Phoenix court team anyway. This is an official Phoenix project. So we're trying to at least convey that this is meant for live view, but it's not part of it. We don't want to, you know, people to have that confusion. Um, and this is in large part why we re-architected to kind of fall within the conventions to just avoid those upstream kind of uh, issues where people will now be go bugging the live view team my live view native thing isn't working. Uh, you know, I'm gonna say, go talk to the live view native team. Um, so we, we try to do what we can to at least imply where the division of labor is in many cases. Um, but then we also have a live view native HTML library. And uh, a lot of the, like right now you're writing your HTML templates in your live view, um, or you're writing external template that gets compiled into that live view. But as I've been writing more and more live view native applications, um, I like the, the render component, like the delegating out to an individual module for a template uh, rendering. So I just wrote a live view native client for HTML that just does that uh, like module isolation rendering delegation 
uh, to an HTML component. And now like the live view, like the responsibility of the live view is really for the event handling and all of the uh, template rendering happens outside of that module. Um, we have a, a VS Code plugin that I just published to the VS Code marketplace yesterday. This does, um, well, syntax highlighting and completion for, uh, uh, right now it has Swift UI built into it, but we're going to be adding Jetpack and, you know, hopefully WinUI 3 at some point. Um, but the syntax highlighting for the modifiers and for our templates. Um, there's the core libraries. Um, I think that there's two at the moment. Uh, these are, I think we're, we may be bringing in some of the core library for 0 0.3 on Swift UI, but the Jetpack library, I think is using it entirely at this point. Um, we're looking at maybe end of Q1, beginning of Q2, when core and the Jetpack libraries would be available for, uh, for use. Um, and I think those are like the primary libraries that we have under development at the moment. Just those. Gotcha. Eh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it may seem like it's a lot of different stuff, but we're trying to make sure that we're not like, I don't want to have something that's like all or nothing, right? If you want to be more selective about what you want installed and running and, you know, compiled into your system, then you should be able to only get what you want. Whereas, you know, the other option would have been like just one, one package, live view native, and it has like everything bundled into it. No, you know, we, if we're writing things in a way that, uh, if we are writing things in a way to force ourselves to write like these, uh, clients that are external to it, then we're consuming our own API and it makes it a path easier for other people to write clients as well. So there's someone that's actually yeah. been writing a flutter client. Um, although I think that he has it for 0 0.2 at the moment. And I got to follow up with him um, probably after I get 0 0.3 into beta and talk to him about migrating to 0 0.3. So in theory, if you write something in Flutter, that's uh, deployable to all environments, right? Android, it iOS, yep. and web, right? It is. And we debated whether we just do this with Flutter from the get-go. Um, I, I think that there's probably a good argument to be made on both sides. Where I came down on is that I don't trust Google to just not like shut down a project <laughs> at you know, like what? on a whim. <laughs> I, no, I never they happened. would never, never. I know. So it, like we're, we're, we put a lot of eggs in the live native basket at Dockyard. We put a lot of, like, a lot of time, a lot of money into developing this. And along the way, I, I need certain uh, assurances that what we're doing was not a waste of investment. And we spent probably the first six months trying to just, assert whether or not Apple would even let us do this. Like the whole concept on server rendered applications um, wasn't clear, but now we're pretty confident that as long as we are not advocating like, hey, you can work around the app store's limitations. Like if you need to deploy, like deploy application A, get it approved and then completely change the nature of it. No, do not do that. <laughs> like we don't want live native flagged, but we're gonna be very clear. Like we may even put it part of the user license agreement that you have to, if you're going to be using like the Swift UI client, you have to adhere to Apple's uh, acceptance criteria. Um, and hopefully if there are individual violators, then they're going to be taken into consideration on a case-by-case -case basis as opposed to the framework itself. 
but we're not the only server render framework out there. Um, I think there's precedence for this at this point. You can make minor updates from server rendered, uh, like if there's like a critical bug or, you know, um, fixing typos, but don't change the nature of your application. That's Mm -hmm. just asking for trouble. Yeah, a lot of applications already have functionality for shipping certain types of changes like content updates that still need to be in the client or messaging or that type of thing. Um, yeah, I I've seen a a bit of that, like Epic probably pulled the the biggest fast one and just (laughs) swapped in their own payments provider and then get swiftly booted into litigation. But yeah, yeah. we're not going to build that feature in live native. That's (laughs) don't bite the hand that feeds you to a degree. (laughs) Yeah, we're not epic, in other words. Yeah. Um, well, uh, also, if you anyone ever had any doubts about whether the the boss of Dockyard codes, uh, I think I think it's been confirmed. Uh, look at the commit log. There's a lot of Cardarel <laughs> in there. Um, I, I, it's it's interesting. That's come up several times. I, when I I mean, for better or worse, I use my Twitter handle to kind of like rant about things for every now and then and. <clears throat> I mean, being a, a software engineer that has experience running a business exposes me to certain problem sets I think that many engineers don't get exposed to. Um, and every now and then I'll run afoul of somebody that is more of a purist on on certain things. And it's like, no, there's constraints here you have to consider. And then they'll say, oh, you're just a businessman. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a software engineer. I've been coding since I was 13. Uh, and so I, I kind of view it as an insult to a degree. I know I'm opening the floodgates now. Everyone, you know, no, oh, you're just a businessman, <laughs> but I, I consider myself a software engineer first always. Yeah. I, I can see how people might not expect that, uh, considering it's like, yeah, Brian Cardarella, he runs Dockyard, uh, and, uh, you've spoken on technical but very often high level things like this is what mm. we're trying to achieve, yada, yada, setting the vision end of things. Uh, it's been interesting to see you very, very in the weeds. Um, but yeah, I try like to I've seen you dive off. into animation libraries yeah. and stuff. I, 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 I've, I'd say most of the time I try to stay hands off when it comes to uh, like coding. And I can definitely manage the company better when I'm not coding because, you know, Software engineering is an all-consuming activity. You know, in order to like to really understand some certain domains, you have to like be in it pretty deep, like thinking about it all the time. Like the time that you spend away from the keyboard, thinking about the problems that you're trying to solve, I think is almost as valuable, if not sometimes more valuable than the time you're putting in front of the keyboard, implementing those solutions. And if I'm if I'm on a project like LiveView Native. I really have to lean on my uh, my senior management team to help you know run some of the day to day stuff at Dockyard. It's uh, it's just a trade off. I I've always heard stories about like I'm not trying to compare myself to them, but you know the quintessential comparison would be like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like the whole story is about how he was running and building Facebook while also coding on it day to day. I don't know how much of that is like reality versus myth, but if it's true, I mean you know, respect to him because that's a really, really difficult thing to do. Like context switching, um, coming out of like deep thinking on software and then moving over to business problems. 
yeah. within the same day sometimes or multiple times and be able to swap back and still be productive. It's just not a skill that I, I have. Um, I need to be kind of all in on something sometimes. Yeah, I run a very small business compared to Dockyard and I I know that struggle. It's, it's like, oh, I should I should be reaching out to people right now. I should be sourcing leads, yada, yada. Yeah. But I also have to put in some uh, hours at the keyboard because that's how yeah. I pay, pay the bills as well. Um, I'm sure I typically Alex find has that never time. considered this stuff at all. <laughs> Just running, how many businesses are you involved in right now? Uh, a few, a few. Writing books and uh, running the consultancy and then the bootstrap business. Yeah, too many things. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's I it takes right a toll. now. I'm probably, it takes a toll. It does. I mean, I'm I'm probably doing about sixty hours of coding per week right now, um, and most of that coding takes place after my kids and my wife have gone to bed. I mean, it's really difficult finding uninterrupted blocks of time during the day. This has other detrimental effects, like it'll eat away, you know, on the other end. And I'm starting to feel that too. I used to be able to go like weeks with like very little sleep and, and being able to like put in crazy amount of time, but I'm 44 now. You know, my kids consume a good amount of my time. I just don't have the energy to do that, but I can at least do it in spurts. Um, and it's sometimes something you have to do. I mean, the whole kind of, I don't view myself as a very, I'd say healthy engineer in terms of my work ethic, but <laughs> Uh, I think it's what's in the best interests of, uh, of my company. And considering that we've made this bet on LiveView Native, um, you know, I, I essentially am responsible for making sure that it's, it's a success and this is how I know how to do it. Yeah. Put in the time. Well, we definitely appreciate you making that bet because we're all, we're all benefiting. So <laughs> we'll see. You. I, I, uh, I'm waiting for my Vision Pro headset to come in in a few weeks, and I'm going to do a little live and native app with it. Yeah, that that's going to be interesting. Just just the fact that I don't wouldn't have to kind of dig deep and pick up a ton of Swift UI to do something basic in live and native. I guess you also have the web in or in Vision OS, but you also have the web in Vision OS, which gives you something. But I imagine native integration is a lot more interesting in Vision OS yeah. than a web we, view would be. So we have it running, the Vision OS is running in the simulator. Um, but the, the limitation we've seen right now is, I mean, it's just, you know, 2D uh, UI elements that you can put into the scene or whatever they're calling it in Vision mm -hmm. OS. Um, they're, uh, what I'd be interested in starting to explore is if there's, uh, integration paths, like kind of marrying or, you know, uh, like augmenting the augmented reality apps with Swift UI in some way. There's just things that it's such a new platform that I don't really know what the you know limits are uh, on how they have the, the frameworks implemented for it yet. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll figure it out. Actually, you mentioned WatchOS when we talk, you talked about different platforms and stuff. Have you mm -hmm. tried? Running a live your native app on watch yep, OS. It runs it's on watch OS as well. Uh, so something that we resource constraint. Yeah. Environment. <laughs> so, well, I mean, uh, live your native is actually a, a very efficient client um, because we don't really Thin. ship anything. Um, yeah. It's the compilation is slow, but that's just Xcode. 
So at uh, at, at this past ElixirConf, uh, Carson, who's the Swift uh, developer on the client, um, one of the example apps that he wrote was a um, multiplayer chess game. And then Paulo actually wrote an NX uh, AI that you can play against. It was like really rudimentary. And so people, the joke was people were like, that were halfway decent at chess could destroy the NX uh, AI. But um, before the conference, I was like, can you get this compiled to watch OS? And he did. And it it ran the, the, the chess application, Luxor Conf Chess, I think is what we called it ran on watch os i was i wouldn't go so far as to say i was upset i would say i was disappointed that we did not uh get into the app store for the conference because i think it would have been funny that the uh the watch the live you native chess app game on the on watch west would require your finger to move the pieces but the chessboard was too small for you to like precisely like everyone would have been fat fingering uh, but you know <laughs> It would have been a interesting demonstration of the capabilities while also being kind of like a tongue in cheek acknowledgement of how ridiculous the, you know, the example was to put onto the, uh, onto the watch. Um, you have to but we compiled it for it. Yeah. I think I may have tweeted out a uh, video or image of that at some point prior to the conference. I don't yeah. recall. I, but Swift UI is supposed to adapt to, to the device you're on. So I assume like chess just scales down to tic-tac-toe and on an iPad, it turns into Go. <laughs> yeah, I think on uh, Vision OS, it turns into StarCraft. Okay, it goes yeah, yeah, that, much will, bigger. that will track, yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I don't have an Apple Watch, so I won't won't be trying that. But honestly, just for, for tinkers, I, I think a lot of, a lot of tech in the Elixir space starts out getting traction with like the tinkerer crowd, like the people oh, yeah. who spend too much time with Elixir. <laughs> I, I count myself among that crowd. Uh, and like, I don't have a big need or like a client need currently to ship, uh, ship native mobile apps. But heck yes, I will happily uh, build some for my own needs, uh, for my own phone. I don't mm. even need to necessarily have them on the app store. Um, much like I've never worked with a nerves client in depth yet, like an actual customer that needs nerves work. I've spent mm. a lot of time with nerves. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's, that's kind of where, where some of the adoption starts and getting yeah, stuff absolutely. on your phone is just super interesting. One of the things mm -hmm. you showed us during the workshop is the uh, like a map component. So it's mm -hmm. uh, it's the map kit integration. Yep. And uh, I've only <laughs> like yesterday I asked you about oh, so does it do Phoenix change events or anything like what can I do with this? Mm -hmm. uh, and I haven't had fully time to try it, I started poking it just before this call, and I didn't uh, have time to get it running because Swift builds so slowly. But <laughs> uh, it's just the idea yeah. that I can scroll a map around with the normal native iOS controls, right? And get like uh, live view events to my live view. It's just like a gen any Gen server, and I could also send data and have it update the map. Like that, that's really annoying to try and do with web tech. 
it's it's tricky and um what we're still like investigating is where that boundary layer is right how much interaction and how much work should be done on the client and how much should be sent back to the server for a diff render to send back to the client for representation or presentation um i'd say in most cases that you know you want that native feel and typically the response of the application i think has to come in under 250 milliseconds like anything that renders in under 250 milliseconds feels like instant um and yeah we have to acknowledge that live view native is a network connection it's a super fast network connection it's very minimum um but you can run into a situation where geographic limitations may impose latency on the native render uh, and so to that end, geographically located servers will be important for, you know, maintaining a native feel on these applications. Um, I wonder if there's to, a host you can use for that. There may be one. Um, the, uh, the, um, the, the question regarding, like, I think what you brought up originally was, can we run this on device or does, is it Alexa on the device? You know, the answer out of the box is no, but we're currently investigating uh, different solutions for packaging and bundling the Phoenix application to run locally on device. And so now the workflow would be that the Phoenix application running on your device is essentially a NER, like a node within an Elixir Erlang cluster, and it's managing data synchronization between some sort of, you know, set of uh, sources of truth somewhere out there. And so all of the actual template rendering is still happening, happening locally on that device. So that's going to always be instant. Now it's just a matter of if the network's down, you're working off of like a local shallow copy uh, of the data set. And once the network's available again, it goes in negotiation, negotiates the uh, synchronization beyond the scenes. Um, in theory, that's all possible. We just haven't really uh, uh, gone and built that yet. But it's and it's looking data good. wise. Actually, if you if you do want to do that, like if you ship uh, an Elixir server on device mm -hmm. and you want to use Ecto on device and stuff, uh, like I've I've worked with uh, Electric SQL both both yeah. paid and in other capacities. They that's what they do. That's what they've built. Yep. Uh, and it's in their case, their currently supported approach is kind of. React Native centric, and I must say, from from having poked around with it, I don't love React Native. I think their solutions within React Native are good, but yeah. I ha have not enjoyed the React Native experience. I, I got to look more deeply Electric SQL. Several people have have mentioned it, and I've put it on the list of uh, things we should consider for this. My one kind of real blocker is if it's always pay to play. Like if it's a if it's a SaaS based thing and we're always telling people in order to do this, you have to go with this one host solution. I'd rather not include that as a default. I, uh, currently, I'm a big believer. Currently you can't even pay them. Uh you can <laughs> you can absolutely self host their sync layer. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean that that would be my one blocker is that we're kind of like codifying uh, a paywall for uh uh for yeah. the offline mode uh, stuff. Uh, you want to avoid that. That's very understandable. Yeah. Uh, keeping up with 
just keeping up with the, the like API surface when so we we talked a little bit during the workshop about kind of building out the components and the styles and the modifiers. There's a bunch of stuff that you've thought a fair bit about and that I think it's hard for us to cover <laughs> during this conversation because it's very yeah. it's very finicky and code uh, oriented. But there's just a lot of APIs that relate to uh, Apple's ecosystem. Yeah. So that's like currently, oh, so I actually forgot some libraries we actually have covered as well. Uh, so there's the MapKit one that uh, Lars, you've already brought up. Um, there is Swift charts, uh, which is a, you know, actual way to get animated, nice looking charts. I believe we have that covered. Um, there's AV kit, which is going to have like video playback. Uh, we have that partially covered. Um, there's AV foundation, which is going to have the camera access. We haven't started covering that. I, I created a repo for it, but we need to cover it. Um, and then there, I mean, there's so many other libraries out there in like owned by Apple that are used for interacting with sensors on the device or for providing certain things. There's like the Apple pay. Uh, integration as well. For example, that's not something that we've implemented yet. Um, there are app clips. For those that are unfamiliar with app clips, it's, I'll try to think of an example. So if you've ever seen like going to a website, I think Instagram or Airbnb does this possibly. If you go to those sites, I think under Safari, it will give you an option to launch like a watered down native version of the app and this is never actually one in the wild <laughs> yeah it's it's a very rare thing like you can look up app clips and, and there's gonna be better examples of what i'm saying right now but the, the the interesting thing is that app clips is server-side rendered executed swift ui code and so they support doing that and it's like oh this actually might be better as live view native and you know we're essentially just providing native ui um so, uh, yeah, it's going to be, I think, on a as-needed basis or a use case basis for those Apple libraries because it's a massive ecosystem uh, to cover. And that's just Apple. Like on the Android side, the Jetpack. So Jetpack itself is an ecosystem. Compose is the UI framework within Jetpack. Jetpack has its whole suite of of uh, uh, of libraries as well. And on top of that, they still have all the other like Java built libraries outside of Jetpack that you can still interact with. Um, and then we get into the WinUI 3 uh, side of things. I mean, I, yeah. I think if we get the WinUI 3 client done, that's a good sign of success <laughs> because we only will like build for Windows when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, what someone pays you to probably. Yeah, but what's cool with that is that I think Xbox uses WinUI 3. So you could theoretically be building like Xbox UIs with Live Native. All right, but to wrap up, uh, what should people be doing with regards to Live Native? Is it time for them to try 0.3 and uh, uh, let you so there's no, the yeah, there's no reports? Documentation and tutorials are not done for uh, 0.3. That's like my blocker for going to... Uh, for going to final. So like the, the release cycle is I'm trying to get some known bugs, compilation, recompilation bugs solved. 
and then a few more features before I go beta on 0.3. And then during the beta phase is when I work on the documentation of the tutorials. Brooklyn has a live book tutorial for 0.2. He was he, he ended up getting COVID, and so we were supposed to release it like a week or two ago. Um, unfortunately, you know, bad timing with, with getting sick. But I think he's nearly done, maybe even this week, that we'll release the live book for 0.2. And we're just going to migrate that for 0.3 over the next few weeks. But beyond that, I'm, uh, I've been reaching out to meetups to, to run these workshops in person. You know, something we don't have a lot of time to discuss this, but I think an interesting topic might also be kind of discussing um, the repercussions of COVID and like the meetup scene. Like for me, uh, in-person events was critical to my career growth. And I'm kind of sad to see like meetups, not just Elixir ones, are pretty much wiped out. Um, and it's going to require some, I think, concerted effort to get them going again. Whether or not the appetite for them has changed, who knows? But I'm kind of taking this workshop on the road and I've reached out to multiple meetup uh, organizers to say, hey, you know, you haven't met in two years, but I'll come to town. We'll, we'll run a workshop and use this as your reason for kickstarting your meetup again. Um at That's some point, beautiful. maybe in the next like month or so, we're going to be releasing the. Uh, so I've been re-implementing. We, we we went through the first uh, chapter of the SwiftUI tutorial, building that tutorial in Live View Native. That's what you, yeah. uh, the three of us, went through the other day. I'll be releasing the first chapter of that um, on the Docker website, and then we're going to have. Sorry, people, but it's going to be a little bit. Give us your email address, and then we'll give you the rest of the the chapters implemented. You know, we, oh no, business! I know business. You said you were a developer. <laughs> Too bad. I have to make money. People, people don't like it. Then, uh, yeah, that's the way it's got to go. We put a lot of money into this. We got to make money out of it. Yeah, that's fair. Harsh <laughs> but fair. All right. Thank you very much, Brian, for coming on the show, and thank Thanks you for always me. to our sponsors. Roxio, Career Fuel for Programmers, and uh, Underjord. It's always weird to shout out your own company, but all right. What about Dockyard? Can you get a Dockyard uh, shout out? Yeah, Dockyard certainly gets a shout out for all the work that they've done in the community throughout the years, uh, including just having their CTO sit down and crack out code for hours on end, apparently. CEO. CEO. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we don't uh, have a CTO. No. Well, at least I didn't call you what we call CEOs in Sweden, which is VD. Oh, no. <laughs> Does that mean what I think it is? Uh, vice director. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, VD no, actually, it's Verkstellande director. So it's not, yeah, it's not a venereal disease. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, Dockyard, we, we are actively uh, you know, soliciting new clients now. Um, we came off some projects at the end of Q4, and I think that we're looking at maybe uh, Q, like March timeframe when some of those resources become available. So if you have a full stack project um, or even like team augmentation, you need some uh, Elixir experts uh, on your team, come talk to us. Uh, and we are also uh, giving, um, I, I look at it as a relationship, but for those that are looking to do early adoption on using LiveView Native, uh, in their companies, we're offering significant financial breaks in exchange for us being able to write case studies about the uh, the experience and the outcomes. Sounds like a fair deal. All right. We hope you join us next time on Theme Radio. Peace.